Let's open God's word together. And if you will, turn with me in your copy of scripture to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Our main text will not be up on the screens behind me. I encourage everyone to open up your own copy and follow along with me. Our reference texts that we will have will be up on the screens, but I would very much encourage you to look at Mark 2 with us in your own copy. We'll start here in just a moment in verse 18. Now, have you ever noticed that in our society, in our world, when someone invents something that is truly new, that is truly innovative, that it's going to to change lots of things, we resist it, at least initially. Even if it's great, even if it's wonderful, even if it ends up doing so much good in the world, we always resist it. We resist change. I remember when these iPhones came out. Do you remember that? Kids, I, believe it or not, we didn't have those at time. There was a time when we didn't have them. And, and when it came out, when they invented these things, I was laughing at it. I thought it was ridiculous. I mean, first of all, fingerprints. I'm going to get fingerprints all over this thing. I'm not going to buy one. I, I would have to clean it all the time, right? And then, you know, who in the world is going to want to type on a screen where you can't feel the buttons? Do you remember thinking that? I thought that. Who in the world is going to do that? We're going to have all kinds of problems. And then browsing the internet on a, a, a thing with a screen this big, a web page? Really, this is ridiculous. And then, you know, probably three months later, it's like, I guess I'll try it. And then, then, then iPads came out. And I remember making fun of the iPads when they came out by putting them up to my ear and saying, it's just a big phone, right? I didn't realize how, how productive this thing was going to make me. And then, do you remember when the internet itself came out? Now, kids, you really don't remember this one, okay? But when the internet itself started to to make it into the homes of the lives of everyday people. I watched a video this past week of people on the Today Show, and they couldn't wrap their minds around this internet thing. Al Roker was asking, what is internet? That's that's the way he said it. What is internet? Right? People were were wondering, what, what in the world is this? And People like Bill Gates would explain, you know, it's a place you go to visit websites and talk to people. And they were like, where do you go? Where does it live? Where, where is all this stuff, right? We couldn't understand it. And we resisted it, and, and we were just, we, we were baffled. Well, Jesus today is instituting a new age, if you will. Instituting a new age. He's talking about the new age that he is bringing. And once again, as we typically do as, as human beings, it is hard to understand. He talks about this new age. Let me show you what I mean in our text Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 18, we'll read down to verse 22. This is God's word. Mark writes, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is is for fresh wineskins. 
Now, I want to divide this passage up into really two different parts. It kind of naturally divides itself up into those parts. Verses 18 through 20, we're going to look at a question about fasting. And then verses 21 through 22, Jesus returns with a challenge about change. Okay, but first, a question about fasting. This is a text that deals with fasting, but it's not really about fasting, if you will. The, the disciples of John the Baptist, it says, and the, the disciples of the Pharisees, they were all fasting. They would do so regularly. It was a regular discipline to draw close to the Lord, to seek the Lord on a particular matter. And because they were fasting, and this is part of the text, and because fasting is such a, a, a weird practice to most Christians, at least in America today, I think we should address it, at least spend some time on the practice of fasting. Because to, to many believers, at least here in our country, fasting is, is foreign to them. I mean, we're, we're Americans, right? Don't come in between us and our food. And so what is, what is fasting? Why, why would somebody do this? Most Christians today in our country, I believe, have never practiced fasting. And so it's good to address this every now and then. What is the big deal about fasting? Fasting is going without food for a particular time to seek the Lord. Going without food for a particular period of time to focus on seeking the Lord. Now, it's important to understand, fasting is not a way to earn God's favor, even though the Pharisees thought exactly that. It's not a way to earn God's favor, to make God bless you. It is not a way to force God's hand to answer your particular prayer request. God does not have to give you what you want because you fasted. But what scripture does tell us about fasting is it is one of the means God has given to us. God has appointed this. God has instituted this. He's given us this gift, this means of seeking him as a way to to seek him fervently and intensely for a time. We should always be seeking God, right? You can always seek God no matter if you're fasting or not. But fasting is a way God has provided to us so that we can seek him fervently and intensely. One biblical reason for fasting is that you want to plead with God about a particular issue that's heavy on your mind and your heart. A particular request of God that's been weighing heavy on you. And so you fast and direct that in an intense and fervent way to the Lord. But fasting is also a God-appointed means of drawing closer to God and feasting on him as your true satisfaction, your true food. As you fast physically, you feast spiritually. I don't know why it is, but God has set it up to where when you go without food for a particular period of time, your, your spiritual senses are turned up. It's like they're turned up. Your, your hunger is turned up. There's a form of suffering that is turned up, but your spiritual senses are also heightened as well. There's a connection that you make to God in a deeper way when you are fasting than than perhaps you ever have before. The closest I have ever felt to God have been times when I have been fasting. We see fasting all throughout the Bible. In John 4.34, when Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well, he had actually sent his disciples away to get some food. And he was there alone speaking to that woman. They come back and Jesus tells them, I'm good. I've got food that you know nothing about. And they say, who brought you food? And he says, my food, John 4, 34, my food is to do the will 
of him who sent me. Sitting there talking to that Samaritan woman, doing the Father's will, filled Jesus up to where he was satisfied after doing that more so than if he had had physical food. His very satisfaction, his very sustenance, he says, was to do God's will. When Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, and then Satan comes to him as he's very hungry and says, turn that stone into bread, and tempts him in that way. Jesus says what? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In that very same vein, Job, in the, the Old Testament, Job, in Job 23, 12, said, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips, God's lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Fasting is a way of saying to God, I want you more than I want food. I need you more than I need food. Did you know you need the Lord more than you need food? But we have to teach our bodies that. We have to teach our bodies. In our minds, we can know it, but Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You have to teach your body that it needs God more than it needs food. One of the fruits of the spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5 is self-control. Right? Self-control. Through fasting, we increase our self-control. We discipline ourselves to grow in self-control. We discipline our bodies and we teach our flesh to know its proper place. Fasting is one way to do that. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says this. He says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Fasting is like training a dog to stay. Stay, right? Or, or training a dog not to go outside the limits that you've set for it. When we fast, we're training our bodies to know their proper place. As Christians, we should be people who keep our bodies under control. That's one of the, the marks of Christians throughout the centuries. And it should be the marks of Christians today. One of the marks of Christians should be that we are people of self-control. We are people who control our bodies. Our bodies don't control us. Our desires don't control us. We control them. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying pagans let their bodies control them. Godly people control their bodies. Godly people have control over their bodies. He even mentioned sexual immorality. Did you know the practice of fasting can help you defeat sexual sin? Why? Because we're teaching our bodies who's in charge. We're teaching our bodies to know their proper place. But if you pay attention to our text, you might be like, okay, John, but that's not the point. That's not the point of the text, right? Jesus talks about there's a time to fast and there's a time not to fast, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then in that day they will fast. Jesus is referring to himself as this bridegroom, his disciples as these wedding guests, his followers. 
And he's saying, there's a time to fast, yes. But right then, it was not the time to fast. He uses the illustration of a wedding reception. How silly would it be if a couple in our church got married and invited all of us to their wedding reception? And we're, we're, we're all showing up. It's dinner time. We're all ready to have a great time with one another. The smell of food is in the air in whatever room we're in. And then somebody gets on the microphone and announces, Ladies and gentlemen, we're about to begin. But tonight we are not going to be eating and drinking. We're going to refrain from those things. Now y'all go and have a good time. You'd have a mutiny on your hands, right? It's the worst re- wedding reception ever. What are we doing? What, the, the whole point that we're, we're here for is food, right? No, it's, it's for the wedding, get the, 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 the bride and groom. But seriously, we're here to celebrate. It's a time to celebrate. This is not a time to fast. It's a time to truly enjoy ourselves. It would be inappropriate to be somber and fast at a time when you're supposed to be rejoicing and celebrating. Kent Hughes, in his Mark commentary, gives a wonderful example of this in traditional Jewish culture. He writes, After a typical ancient Jewish wedding, the couple would not honeymoon, but they would stay at home for a week of open house, in which there was continual feasting and celebration. For the hard-working couples who got married, this was traditionally considered to be the happiest week in their lives. The bride and groom were treated like a king and a queen that week. Sometimes they even wore actual crowns. They were attended by chosen friends known as guests of the bridegroom. Their guests were exempted from all fasting through a rabbinical ruling. Remember, this is Jewish culture. Through a rabbinical ruling, they were exempted from all fasting, which said, here's the ruling, all in attendance to the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's beautiful. They're relieved of of all religious observances which would lessen their joy because this is not a time for for suffering. This is not a time for self-discipline in that way. This is a time for feasting. It's a time for joy. It's not a time for fasting. Furthermore, if it is true what we said earlier that fasting is about seeking the Lord, why would the disciples in our text, why would they be fasting when the Lord was right there in their midst? Fasting is about seeking the Lord. It's about drawing closer to the Lord. But he was there with them. It's not time to fast when he is there. But then we must step back and ask, okay, then does this text mean, as some claim it does, that Christians are not to fast? That fasting was for the old time, the old way of relating to God, and it is not for Christians any longer. Some people will use this very text, especially as Jesus goes on to point out in verses 21 and 22 how this is a new age. Some people will come to this text and say, Christians are not supposed to fast. We don't need to make that a part of our regular religious observance. And to that we say, no, absolutely not. That's a twisting of this passage. Jesus fasted in the wilderness. In Acts 13, the church at Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting when the Holy Spirit told them to set aside Saul and Barnabas for missionary work. In Acts 14, elders are appointed in churches as the people fast and seek God's will. And in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he even gives instructions on how to fast and how not to fast. But most clearly, here in our passage, specifically in verse uh, 20, Jesus says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. 
Jesus says that the day will come when he is taken away, and then his followers will fast. We await Jesus' return in the midst of a world full of sin and suffering. And so fasting is quite appropriate in the day and age that we live in now. I will tell you, before we announce it officially, but I will tell you ahead of time, there's coming up a Wednesday in the next few weeks after Easter. Once we get after Easter, I believe it's somewhere around April 19th, as my mind is, is remembering correctly, where we are going to set a day of fasting for this church. A day of fasting for the entire church. And anyone in the church who eats food on that day will be excommunicated. <laughs> no, um, it's, not, it's not like that. But we will be encouraging those who can physically to join us in fasting that day. In refraining from food for that day. And then, that's going to be a Wednesday. We're doing it that way on purpose so that we come together on a Wednesday night. There won't be class that night. Instead, there's going to be prayer. It's going to be an hour-long session of prayer. Lots of different kinds of prayer, different ways that we're going to be praying. So you won't be closing your eyes and sitting there for an hour and falling asleep and dreaming about food. But we're going to seek the Lord in prayer. And I'm here to tell you, I am anticipating that it will be one of the most intense and satisfying times of prayer that we've ever had. Because that's what happens when you fast. That's what happens. Specifically, we're going to ask the congregation to focus on prayer regarding people that we know who don't yet know Jesus. People that need to come to know the Lord. We're going to be fasting and seeking the Lord in prayer on their behalf. That's coming up, just so you know. But back to the point Jesus is making, and the point that I'm trying to make here is that he's saying fasting is quite appropriate in the age we live in now. It just wasn't appropriate for the disciples when they had him with them. It was a time of joy and celebration. But then he transitions, verses 21 and 22, from a question about fasting to then a challenge about change. A challenge about change. The people wanted to know about fasting, but Jesus redirected them to think about something else. Now, if you pay attention to the Gospels, Jesus does this all the time, doesn't he? He does this all the time. Someone will come to him with a question, and then he'll redirect their question to something else. Some deeper need, something that's deeper than what they originally came to him for. He addresses the deeper issue underneath the question. And I'm here to tell you, we are all just like those people coming to Jesus with their questions. Every single one of us are just like that because we come to God, we come to the Bible, we come to church with the issue that's on our minds, the issue that's on our hearts and on our shoulders. Perhaps it's anxiety. Perhaps it's temptation. Perhaps for you it's anger. Perhaps it's sexual sin. Perhaps it's loneliness. Perhaps it's bitterness. Perhaps it's parenting. We come to God with our issue. And we want a pill to fix our problem. We want God to just give us a pill and say, here you go, take this, and that's it. We want something easy, some principle that will fix our problem. And Jesus, being the master physician, acknowledges our problem, but then goes deeper and addresses what we truly need. It happens to us all the time. Just like he did for the paralyzed man at the beginning of Mark 2. The paralyzed man was lowered before Jesus, expecting a physical healing. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. 
came to him for physical healing, and Jesus gave him something better, something more. And so we are just like that. But in verses 21 and 22 here, Jesus used two, uses two brilliant illustrations to, to tell us about the new age that he is ushering in. The first illustration comes in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. We've got clothes. We understand this. Our clothes are already shrunk because we've washed them a bunch of times. But if I get a hole in my favorite pair of jeans or whatever, well, I, I don't know if you're like me. I, I want to keep those jeans. They, they, they feel comfortable. So let's, let's patch them up. But if we patch them up with a new piece of cloth, well, that cloth is going to shrink the next time we wash. That cloth's going to pull away. That cloth is going to make a tear there. Or perhaps less familiar to us is his illustration in verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Back then they had to put wine into wineskins, but they had to be new wineskins, new leather made from animal skin because that leather was pliant. It could, it could expand. It, it, it could move, right? The new wineskins could, and the wine's going to expand as it ferments in those wineskins. But if you put it in an old wineskin that's already been expanded, that's already hardened up, well, that thing's going to burst, and then the wine's going to spill out. Everything's destroyed. What was the point? Right? And so Jesus is saying here, with these illustrations, he's saying, I'm ushering in a new age, a new way of relating to God, and it's going to require a leaving behind of the old way. He's saying the new and the old don't mix. That's what Jesus is saying. The new and the old don't mix. He has come to inaugurate what the Bible calls the new covenant. The new covenant. Scripture tells us that Jesus was the end of so many Old Testament practices. Jesus was the end of Old Testament animal sacrifices, right? He's the end of those things. He's the once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus was the end of cleanliness laws and food laws. The Bible says Jesus was the end of the temple being the only place that God could be worshipped. Jesus was the end of the Jews being the only people of God. And Paul even tells us multiple times Jesus was the end of the law itself. Jesus was the end of the law. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus has opened up a new and living way to God. A new and living way to God. And so with the coming of Jesus, with his death and resurrection, Jesus begins a new age in the history of the world. I often call it the church age. It's the age we're living in now, the church age. The church age began when Jesus ascended up into heaven, and it will end when Jesus returns. It's a very long one, some of us might think, but depending on how you consider long and short, this is the church age. This is the new age that Jesus has inaugurated. But then the question becomes, okay, so what? So what? I mean, I can understand that for the people living in Jesus' day, this was a big topic. It was a big change, a big transition for them. It would have been hard. But for us, I mean, we've been living in this new age our whole lives. Our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, we've all been living in this new age. So why should I care about what Jesus says here? What does this really matter for me today in my everyday life? Well, notice how Jesus is making the point that the new and the old don't mix. New cloth on an old garment, new wine and old wineskins, they don't mix. He knew there would be people who tried to mix the two. They would have a hard time letting go of the old way of life for the new one. Paul even wrote the book of Galatians 
to teach that Gentiles who were coming into the church did not need to become Jewish. They didn't need to become Jewish. They didn't need to be circumcised because Judaism and Christianity are two different things. One grows out of the other, but they're two different things. But Jesus knew that, that people would try to mix the old with the new. They would have a hard time letting go of their old way of life for the new one. And so for us today, the same is true. Jesus knows the same is true today. That people will have a hard time letting go of their old way of life for the new one that Jesus offers. You see, Jesus did not come to fit into the life you already have. Jesus didn't come to fit into the life that you already have. He did not come to be a nice addition to your already respectable life. He means to take over. He means to give you a completely new life. Jesus says you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born anew. And this means when you follow Jesus, you must reorient your entire life around him. You must reorient your entire life around him. Remember back when we were in school and we used to make those those web diagrams on the board? Web diagram, you know, you've got a bubble in the middle and this, this one thing's in the middle and then everything else is is got a line coming out from that and then these other bubbles that are around that one thing in the middle. Well, most people think of their lives like this. The, the bubble in the middle is, is you, your life. And then jutting out from that web is all kinds of different parts of your life that, that you feel are important. Right? So you've got a line out to family. You've got a line out to career. You've got a line out to friends. And you've got a line out to hobbies and, and downtime. You've got a line out to, to Jesus. And you're at the center. And what what God is saying is that's not going to work. That's not how we do things. If you want to follow Jesus, we're going to to erase that that whole thing off the board. New web, the circle in the middle, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the circle in the middle. And everything else comes out from that. Jesus is the center. And now my, my family and my career and my hobbies... And and everything else comes out from that center circle where Jesus is in the middle. Jesus requires of his followers that he be in the middle. It's a whole new perspective. It's a whole new way to live. And so instead of adding Jesus into your life like you might add exercise or something like that, now he's the center. And so now the question is, how do I work at my job as a follower of Christ? How do I relate to my family members and my friends as a Christian? How do I use my downtime and my hobbies for his glory and for his kingdom? How do I order my finances with Jesus at the center? You see, it's a whole different way of living. It's a new life, and Jesus knew that people would have trouble with this newness. Jesus calls us to make a clean break with our old lives. A clean break with our old lives. In Romans 6, Paul says that our baptism is a death of our old self and a resurrection to newness of life. When you go under that water, you're dying to your old self. When you come out of it, it's a resurrection to a new life. It's a clean break. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he uses this, you cannot serve God and money. But it's not just money. You cannot serve God and anything else. You can't serve two masters. You can only have one. So either Jesus is your master or something else is. Money, sex, popularity, sports, career, or the, the one that every single one of us struggles with, self. Who's your master? Jesus or you? When, you? when you come to Christ, Jesus is saying, you are not your master anymore. I am. You have a new master. You give yourself to a new master. James 4.4 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world. What does that mean? James is using it in this way. It means making peace with the sin and temptation of the world. The things of this world that God forbids. The things that he hates. If you make peace with the world like that, James says you make yourself an enemy of God. So many people today want to be friends with God and friends with the world. Friends with God and friends with the world. Want to have one foot over here and one foot over there at the same time. And God says it can't happen. It can't happen. Jesus says you can't do that. You can't serve two masters. You can't be friends of both. It's all or nothing. You can't have both. You have to choose. If you want to have the benefits of Christianity while all the benefits, keeping all the benefits of being a worldly person, you have made your choice, James says, and God says, if you try to have both, you have chosen, and you have chosen the world. You can't have both. It's all or nothing when you follow Jesus. He asks for you to give him your whole heart, not just part of it, to hold nothing back. Jesus tells us whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake, whoever gives it away, gives it up, will save it for eternal life. And so, Jesus is saying you've got to make a clean break. Out with the old when you want to be a new creation. It's like you're a little kid at the edge of a swimming pool. Kids, it is almost swimming season. Almost. And it's like you're at the edge of one of those swimming pools and you're looking in at that water. And you're so scared to jump in But if you do, a world of swimming and fun will be open to you. But you're scared. I can't jump in. What's going to happen? What's it going to feel like? What if if I stay under? I I don't know. And so you you walk over to the ladder to dip your toe in. And and you start start to lift up your leg. And then you hear the, the lifeguard's whistle. And the lifeguard points right at you and yells at you and says, Nope, nope, you can't get in that way. The only way in is to jump. That's what it is to follow Jesus. You can't put your toe in. The only way in is to jump. And when you jump in, there's a world of joy open to you. But the only way in is to give everything. To let him have it all. To make a clean break with the old. And embrace fully the new life that Jesus has for you. And so God is looking for those who are willing to jump. God is looking for those who are willing to forsake 
their old life and embrace the new one. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with the old. Oh, how we wish it were easy. Oh, how we wish when you came up out of those waters of baptism, you didn't struggle with sin anymore. We wish that, but it is not the Lord's will for life to work like that. We will struggle with our old self. And we will have to work at killing off our old self for the rest of our lives. But there is a decision to make. There is a clean break that you must make if you want to follow Christ. And if you want to be saved from your sins, if you want to be right with God, will you jump in? That's the question. So that's the question I leave you with today. Right now we're going to take some time and we're going to pray We ask everyone to participate in this time of response to the Lord each week. Because when we hear from God, we need to speak back to Him. Oftentimes, each one of us needs to respond in a different way than those that are right next to us. And so this time that we're going to give here in these next few moments is for silent prayer, for you to respond to whatever the Lord has laid on your heart. And when we go to God and we respond to Him, we'll do that for a few minutes silently, and then we'll come back, we'll have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond to the Lord in a public way can do so. So right now, let's pray for a few moments.